Acts 18. So last week we looked at the close of Paul's second missionary journey, second extended mission trip that Paul takes. We looked at the end of that last week. All those black stars are kind of where he hits. He starts in Antioch over there on the right, Philippi, then Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth. Those five major cities are the places where he goes. And then we saw him last week going back to Antioch. Today, we're going to look at Paul's third missionary journey, the whole, just about the whole thing in one day. It's different from the previous two. He starts in Antioch, that black star again, and he works all the way over to Ephesus, the green star. That's about uh, somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 miles, depending on uh, which route he took. He did all of that overland. Those yellow stars are places he had planted churches on his first mission trip. And he goes back through them. Reading the just Luke's account, it doesn't appear that Paul spent any time in any other city. He seemed to move really fast just to get to Ephesus. And he spends two and a half or three years there, the longest time we see him in any one city. And we'll look at all of that. All of that is included in the 20 or so verses we're going to look at this morning. It's just about that entire two and a half or three-year period. Ephesus is the biggest city in Asia. It's the political and commercial hub of the province. It's very, very strategic, very significant. Many churches were planted out of that Ephesian church. It appears that what Paul did is he went and he put down roots there for a couple of years, and he sent other people out to plant churches. The seven churches you read about in Revelation are all Asian churches. They were most likely planted during this period by one of Paul's co-workers. So that's what we're going to look at today. First, we're going to start in uh, chapter 18, verse 23. We're introduced to a man named Apollos before we jump back to Paul. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from Antioch and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Those were those yellow stars. He was hitting those churches that he had started uh, several years ago. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. There's our city. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew the baptism of John. That's John the Baptist. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So Apollos is someone we see a couple of times. You see him in 1 Corinthians. You see him in Titus. He was a... He, uh, over time, became at least a co-worker of Paul, if not a friend. We don't know anything about his spiritual background. We don't know how he came to the Lord. We don't know who led him to Jesus. We don't know who taught him. But he, he, had a, he was missing something. So he was learned in the scriptures. He taught the way of Jesus accurately. Your Bible, at least my translation, says he spoke with great fervor. Literally, it means he boiled in the spirit. That's what that phrase means, literally. He was a passionate person. Um, he was led by the spirit. He knew the word. He was effective in ministry. But he was missing something. He didn't know about Christian baptism. All he knew was John the Baptist's baptism. Way back at the beginning of Matthew, you can see it. Way back at the beginning of Mark. Way back in the beginning of John and Luke. John the Baptist was on the scene before Jesus, and he 
preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so people would come out to him in the desert and he would baptize them as an outward sign of an inward repentance. As pre- it was preparatory, preparing the way for the Messiah who was to come after him. And John was very clear, I'm not him. There's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What I'm doing is preparing the way for him. And that's for whatever reason, that's all Apollos knew. We don't, we don't know why. It's just what he knew. And Priscilla and Aquila, remember we looked at them last week, husband and wife, Aquila husband, Priscilla the wife. They were co-workers with Paul in the leatherworking business. They also were very uh, active in ministry circles. They appear to be very influential They hear Apollos and they realize he's missing something and they pull him aside and they instruct him, kind of coach him up a little bit. And then he says, hey, I want to go to Corinth. And so he leaves to go to Corinth and Paul comes to Ephesus. So chapter 19, verse 1, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. That's that thousand plus mile journey. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied, just like Apollos. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That's in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were 12 men in all. So for me, this is one of the oddest exchanges in all of the Bible. It's difficult for me to get my head around. So Paul comes to Ephesus and there's 12 disciples. Now, every time in Luke and Acts, remember Luke wrote both of those books, every time you see the word disciples and it's unqualified, always refers to followers of Jesus. 100% of the time in Luke and Acts, if you just see the word disciples and it's not qualified, whose disciples they are. The context always says they're followers of Jesus. So to me, that's what we've got here. Paul comes upon some followers of Jesus. They're disciples of his. And he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? He never asked that question of anybody else in all of the Bible. I don't know what he saw in them that caused him to ask that question. I don't know what they were talking about or what they were doing. I don't know if it was just God speaking to him and he had some kind of word of of knowledge to say, this is what's going on. So he asked them this question. They never asked anybody again. And it's a strange question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's like asking, did you become a Christian when you believed? You can't be a Christian apart from receiving the Holy Spirit. And Paul's the one who told us that. In Romans 8, he says, if you haven't received the Spirit of Jesus, then you're not a Christian. In his letter to the Ephesians, to these guys that he wrote later, Ephesians 1.13 says, When you believe, you're given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. So according to Paul's theology, when you believe in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. And he asked these guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It doesn't make any sense to me. Again, it's like saying, did you become a Christian when you believed in... Well, of course not. Yes. How, how could it be otherwise? And their response is interesting. No, we haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit. Who's he? What's that? They don't know. And then Paul's response is even weirder to me. Do you, it seems like the conversation's about the Holy Spirit. 
Have you received him? No. Who is he? And rather than Paul explaining, here's who he is. And here's what he does. And here's how he works in the life of a believer. Well, what baptism did you receive? What does that have to do with anything? Why is he at? That doesn't, that doesn't follow to me. Have you received the Holy Spirit? No. Who is he? What baptism did you receive? I don't even know why he's asking the question. John's baptism, just like Apollos. Same one. Paul says, that's okay. That's, that's good. We don't have to do that one anymore. That was preparatory. That was to prepare the way for Jesus. Jesus has come. Now you know that. You're a disciple of his. We have this thing called Christian baptism now. You obviously have not heard of it. Acts 2.38, Peter says be baptized in the name of Jesus. That's, that's what we, we're baptized. Water baptism now is in the name of Jesus. Not a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins that John the Baptist proclaimed. And then he rebaptizes them. Never, no one else in the entire New Testament is ever rebaptized. Apollos had the same situation. He'd been baptized in the name, or he had received John the Baptist's baptism. He's instructed about Christian baptism. He's not rebaptized. These guys received John the Baptist's baptism, instructed about Christian baptism, are rebaptized. I don't know why. And then Paul lays hands on them, they start speaking in tongues. Of course they do. Why not? And then he walks away. Interesting encounter for me. A strange exchange between these two guys. So what is actually going on there? I don't know everything about it. A couple of ideas. One, as we've looked at Acts, one thing we've said repeatedly is Acts is about the breaking, the gospel breaking through geographic boundaries. Acts 1-8 through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I think one of the things that you see here in Acts 19 is the gospel also breaking through religious boundaries. There's three times in Acts where where a group is explicitly said to speak in tongues after they've received, after they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. And in each one of those cases, you have a different group of religious people or people with different religious backgrounds. We'll say it that way. So while Acts does absolutely speak about the geographic expansion of the gospel, the gospel breaking through geographic barriers from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, the ends of the earth, we also see the gospel breaking through these religious barriers, which were significant. In Acts chapter 2, when the 120 Jewish believers are filled with the Holy Spirit, And they all speak in tongues. Peter explains it by saying, this is what Joel said would happen. The prophet Joel said this in his in chapter two, verses 28 and 29. He said, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. That's the key phrase. All people, sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And then Joel said, and Peter says, that's what's happening here. That's what you're witnessing here on this Pentecost. Then in Acts chapter 10, we see Cornelius. He's a God-fearing Gentile. He's not a Jew. But when you read about him, it says he's righteous and devout. He prays daily. He gives. He has a lot of the hallmarks of someone who worships God. He just hasn't been circumcised, probably doesn't follow the dietary restrictions. And when Peter goes to his house and preaches, he and his whole household, maybe up to two dozen people, are filled with the Spirit, and they all speak in tongues. And it was a sign The Jews got Acts chapter 2. We're God's people. So, of course, this promise given in Joel, our book, our Bible, was fulfilled for us. Of course, the 120 Jews who were gathered in the upper room, of course they're going to receive this promise of the Father, this gift of God, 
the Holy Spirit. Because we're his people. Then in Acts chapter 10, that gets expanded. Well, Cornelius wasn't one of his people in the sense of being ethnically Jewish. He'd not, he'd not converted to Judaism. He'd not been circumcised. Most likely didn't follow dietary laws. So that's, an, that's a breaking through of a boundary. He receives, in his household, received the exact same experience that the Jews do in Acts chapter 2. They speak in tongues. It's, this, it's uh, an objective sign that these guys have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Everybody who's around can say, yeah, that happened to us. That happened to our 120 guys. The same thing happened here with these guys. So God must be saying, okay, they're okay. They don't have to become Jews to be God's people. And then Acts 19, you have a group that's even farther removed. They're what we would call pagans, in the, not in a judgmental sense. They didn't know anything about the God of the Old Testament. They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't, they didn't know anything about anything. And Paul lays hands on them and prays, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. It's, it's the final boundary religiously. The gospel's already crossed all of these geographic boundaries, and now in Acts 19, we see it crossing every religious boundary. It's not just Jews who are all people. It's not just Jews and really righteous and pious Gentiles who are all people. It's all people who are following Jesus are all people. God has redefined over the course of the book of Acts what it means to be in his family. He's redefined the people of God. This promise, which the Jews for hundreds of years would have said, that's for us as God's chosen people. Acts 2 and 10 and 19 says, no, God's people are now all of those who follow Jesus. And we have this objective phenomenon of speaking in tongues for, in these different groups. Jews, everybody was okay with. God fears that's a stretch, but we get it. These guys in uh, Acts 19, nobody's assuming that those guys are going to be okay. A, a Jew is not. And they receive the same gift. And so I think that's part of what's going on. This whole thing about water baptism, I think they just didn't know what they didn't know. And I think Paul rebaptized them to give them some tangible experience. You receive the Holy Spirit when you believe, but y'all didn't know you did. You did, or I couldn't call you. You're not a disciple. They had the Holy Spirit. They said, no, that they did. And so I think he rebaptized them in water to give them a tangible experience. I'm going to rebaptize you in water. That's a tangible experience. And you're going to associate that with the giving of the Holy Spirit to you. And then he prays for them and they speak in tongues. If he'd known they were going to speak in tongues, I don't know if he would have rebaptized them in water. I don't know. I don't think that he would have thought that was necessary. I really don't. But one came before the other. The water came before the Spirit. So anyway, that's what I think is going on. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Now we're going to look at uh, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue, which is what he always does. Spoke, spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. There doesn't seem to be as much hostility in this city as there were in other cities. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So that's, a, that's not just the city of Ephesus. It's saying this whole state, we would call it. All of these people have heard. God did extraordinary miracles, not just regular miracles. These are extraordinary through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, that's sweatbands, so this is a little gross, sweatbands and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, 
and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. So here's a snapshot of what Paul does for over two years. His regular M.O. goes to the synagogue, preaches. Some people are responsive, some people are not. At some point, the people who are not become so difficult that Paul leaves. And he goes to a lecture hall. There's a a tradition that says he met in this lecture hall from 11 a.m. to 4. And so that, that was the heat of the day. That's when everybody would have been taking a siesta. So you can figure out that in your work schedule. 11 to 4 is how long they would take a siesta. And that's when Paul would preach. He worked in the morning making tents. That's what he did. Twenty verse thirty, Chapter 20, verse 34, he says, When I was with you, I took care of myself. I took care of my own needs. So he's doing this leather working in the morning. Then when the lecture hall is empty because it's hot and everybody's asleep, that's when he goes there and he begins to preach. He takes, he just, it's what's given to him. And so that's what he does. He's obviously uh, anointed enough that people come. People continue to respond. And then you have this thing with handkerchiefs and aprons, which is weird for us. It almost sounds like magic. There are some precedents. Remember the lady reaching out and grabbing a hold of Jesus's, the hem of his robe. Earlier in Acts, we saw that uh, people who had Peter's shadow fall on them were healed. So there are some prior examples of these extraordinary miracles. Uh, Ephesus was a place that was uh, really into magic. So I think that probably had something to do with it. I think God was saying, um, I'm stronger than all of that. And so people would take Paul's sweat rags, really, that he had used in the morning while he was working, and they would take those to people and they would be healed. So you're, you're desperate for a cure if you let somebody wipe their sweat rag on you. But that's what happened. And God used that uh, to bring healing to these people. And again, that's an unusual occurrence. That's not a normal way that God works, even supernaturally. That's not a normal way that he works through objects on that level. This is a special case, I think, again, because that city, and we'll look at this more next week, magic was such a huge part of the religious life of that city. I think that probably is why God chose to work in such an extraordinary way. Uh, was to demonstrate the power of the name of Jesus. And you'll see that here a little bit in this next story, and we'll talk about it more next week. Some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. Uh, Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So I think what's happening is Paul is effective in healing and exorcisms. And so you have other people who say, oh, I want to do that too. He's using the name of Jesus We're going to use his name also. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It's bad for business. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So what you have going on here, I think, again, is uh, there's, there's a lot of, kind of magic running around Ephesus. It was a city that was known for that. Again, we'll talk about that more next week. But for this week, 
There's, Paul is effective to the point that even his sweat rags are effective in seeing people healed and delivered from demons. And so you have other people who are trying to use the name of Jesus. Jews were um, respected as exorcists. And especially, so this guy Sceva was not a chief priest. He wasn't the high priest. He just said he was. Uh, And he said he was most likely because the high priest is the only person who could say the personal name of God, Yahweh. Only the high priest could say that. And only one time a year. So everything is all about, in magic, everything's all about power. Spells and all that stuff, it's, it's, it's name associated with this name Yahweh that's so powerful and so holy, it cannot even be spoken except once, it, once a year by one person. So by saying he's a chief priest, that looks good on his business card. And so he and his sons have an exorcism business. That's what they do. And they see, hey, Paul's effective using the name of Jesus, so we're going to use that as well. There's no, it's not, I almost want to say it's not even religious for them. It's just a technique. What, what's the formula to seek to have power over spirits? It's magic tricks. Tell me the secret so I can do it as well. So there's not any personal association with Jesus at all. They're just using his name because his name is effective. And it seems like maybe they were able to use it effectively as well, at least a couple of times. It doesn't seem like this was the first time they tried it because it says, what does it say? So they finally they find this guy. They're going around driving out spirits. and They're trying to invoke the name of Jesus. And they would say this. And at some point, a demon says, time out. Who are you? I know Jesus. I know about Paul. Never heard of you. And he beats them senseless, beats seven kids up, seven guys up. This one man does. As he's possessed by this spirit. And that caused the whole city to go, whoa. Jesus' name is different. One, the demons know his name. And two, you can't just throw his name around like you can everybody else. This isn't some magic formula. This isn't some incantation that anybody can say. There's something different about his name. And it says fear sees the city. And you have Christians. People who have begun to follow Jesus who have practice magic in the past saying we're not going to do that anymore we realize now you can't have it both ways there's again there's something maybe they had those magic scrolls and whatever as a backup you know i've got jesus but just in case he's not powerful enough to take care of my problems just in case he's not powerful enough to deal with whatever evil spirits there are in my life or my world i've got all this other stuff i can fall back on and they realize i don't need it anymore he is more powerful than them and so they repent publicly. And you have all these people burning their scrolls, 50,000 drachma. Drachma was one day's wage. That gives you some idea of how expensive, how valuable this stuff was. 50,000 days worth of work. That's what was getting burned uh, in front of these, uh, in this city. All because this demon beat up these guys who were using the name of Jesus uh, irreverently. So I was reading it. We'll look at some of that a little bit more next week, kind of the magic part of it. For this week, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about Apollos, this Ephesian 12, those guys, those 12 Ephesian disciples, and the sons of Sceva. And I see a bit of a thread there. Uh, You may pull out something else. They're all missing something. Apollos is missing. It's just information. He doesn't know everything. Very simple. He doesn't know about Christian baptism. There's a lot, there are lots of things he does know. Very effective in ministry. Teaches the way of Jesus accurately. Boiling in the spirit. That's how passionate he is about and anointed he is to proclaim the good news. 
He just doesn't know about Christian baptism. And you see the humility in him. When, when Aquila and Priscilla pull him aside and say, hey, I want to tell you something, and maybe here's a side note. Notice that they don't do it in public. They pull him aside into their home and they talk to him. There's probably something there for us. When you're talking about correcting somebody or helping somebody grow, there's a way of doing it that doesn't completely crush their dignity or does not put someone on the defensive. And they did that that way. Hey, come over. Let's talk about this. We want to explain some things to you that you apparently don't know. And you see humility in Apollos. He lets a woman teach him, which is unheard of in this time. Women did not teach men. And her name is listed first. So you have Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos. Who's, he's a co-worker with Paul. And you see the humility. And he doesn't say, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Do you want my resume? He doesn't do any of that. He receives what they're saying with humility and moves on. And none of us knows everything. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord. I don't care how many times you've read through the Bible. None of us knows everything. There's always more. And there, I think from Apollos, you see this, the, the posture for us. It's this posture of humility that says, okay, I want to recognize there may be people who, who haven't been Christians as long as me. There may be people who I wouldn't normally hear from. God can speak to me through them. They may have something for me. And I want to remain open to what God is saying to me. And so maybe for us, the question is, when was the last time you learned something new about the Lord? When was the last, who, who speaks into you? Who helps you grow? Some of you are readers. What are you reading? Some of you are listeners. What are you listening to? Some of you are verbal processors. Who are you talking with? How are you growing in your knowledge and understanding of who God is? But these sons of Sceva, they're missing something. It's not knowledge. It's, it's relationship. They don't, they don't know Jesus. They know about him. They know his name, but they don't know him. And so they try to use his name without having a relationship with him, and it doesn't work so well. And there may be a handful of you here this morning, and that's you. You know some things about Jesus, but you would say, I, personally, I don't know him yet. In Matthew 7, when Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that one of his most famous messages, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. There'll be people at the last day and they'll say, didn't we drive out demons in your name? That's these guys. In your name, didn't we prophesy? And I'll say, get away from me. I never knew you. Only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Those are the ones who will be saved. In John 17, 3, Jesus defines eternal life as knowing him and knowing God who sent him. And remember, we've said knowing biblically is not mental. It's experiential. It's knowing a person, not knowing a body of information. The sons of Sceva didn't have that. They knew some things about Jesus. They didn't know him. They didn't have a relationship with him. And he can't be used. And the same thing is true for us. So do, do you know him? Not just do you know about him. You know some things. Do you know him personally and experientially? If not, I would encourage you. Think through that. Begin to ask the Lord to reveal himself to you in a personal and experiential way. And pay attention to what he's doing. You have these Ephesians 12. And this is where most of us in the room land. They just didn't know what they had. Paul says to them. This is just my opinion. You can disagree. Paul says to them as followers of Jesus. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. Or they, they couldn't be Christians. But they didn't know. They didn't know what they possessed. They didn't know who was living within them. And so there was something about their life that caused Paul to say, 
there's a, there's a gap between what I see in your life and what I would expect from people who are following Jesus, who are walking in the Spirit. There's, 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 a, there's a gap. They're, they're not lining up. Maybe God spoke to Paul and he asked a question. Maybe Paul observed their life. I don't know. But there was a gap there for those guys between what should be and what was. And the gap was their understanding of the Holy Spirit within them, who he is and what he does. And unfortunately, for much of the church in our area in particular, for sure in our area, it's the same thing. If Paul were to show up, he might say, of course, yes, he, he said that we can't be Christians without it. But many of us live as if we did not, as if he were not living and dwelling within us. There's a couple of pictures for me that hope maybe will help you, maybe won't. One is the difference between a pond and a river. So when you become a Christian, the Spirit takes up residence in your life. That's Ephesians 1.13. When you believe, you're given the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. But Jesus talks about being filled with the Spirit. And we see that phrase in Paul. We see it in Acts. Jesus in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So to me, there's a difference between receiving the Holy Spirit at conversion and then being led by him, if you like that word better, or being filled by him on a regular basis. And the difference is power. That's the difference. It's the difference between a pond and a river. There's water in both cases. One's quiet and still. One's dynamic and powerful. You're meant to be the picture on the right. Many of us live like the picture on the left. I think the Ephesian 12, they're the guys on the left. I think they've received the Holy Spirit because Paul calls them Christians. You can't be a Christian otherwise. They just don't know that they have. They have all of this power within them. They just don't know it. And so they're not accessing the power that's available to them. The Holy Spirit is God's enablement to us. Jesus actually says to his disciples, it's better for you when I leave. Think about that. I'm God in the flesh. But it's better for y'all if I'm not around anymore. How does that work? It's better for you to not have me with you. Why? Because when I leave, I'll send another one. I'm external to you. He'll be internal. I'm limited by a body. I can only be in so many places at once. He's not limited by a body. He can indwell everyone who says yes to Jesus through all time in all places. And so it's better for us that Jesus has risen is seated at the right hand of the Father because he pours out his spirit on his followers. And so God himself lives within you. He empowers you to be faithful and to be fruitful. He empowers you to be faithful to the life God desires for you to live. You can think about the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self, and self-control. All of those things are yours. He empowers you to live that way, to, to, for those fruits to come out for you to take on those characteristics and attributes. He also empowers you to be fruitful in your service to others, in your love towards others, in your blessings towards others, to be witnesses. And that plays out in two different ways. In 1 Peter 4, Peter says, I want you to use whatever gift you've got to bless other people. And then he breaks down into two categories. If you have a gift to serve, then serve. And if you've got a gift to speak, then speak. He says this, if you speak... Do so as one who speaks the words of God. If you serve, do so with the strength God provides. So when you think about power, the Holy Spirit empowering you, think about those two categories, speaking and serving. Speaking the words of God, serving as God 
enables you to. So think about the serving piece. Anybody can serve. There are tons of people who serve who don't have any connection to Jesus at all. There are tons of people who serve as Christians who don't recognize the Holy Spirit lives within them. And they're effective in that. But the thing is, over time, if you're serving in your own strength, you're going to wear out and you're going to run down. And so the question for you is, are you, are you burned out? Are you tired? Everybody gets tired at times. We're humans. We have limitations. But would you say, I'm burned out? I'm worn out. I'm done. You may be serving in your own strength. You can get in a rowboat or you can get in a sailboat. Both can get you to the same spot. One of them you're going to be tired when you get there. The other one you're not. For many of us, we live our lives as rowboat Christians. We know, hey, God wants me to do this. God is speaking to me about this. And then we start working. We start rowing and rowing and rowing. And some of us, through willpower and discipline, we get there and we're done. When we get there, some of us never even make it because we wear out on the journey. God does not desire us to live that way. Think about Acts chapter 2, the wind of the Spirit that comes at Pentecost. His desire is to empower you to accomplish the things he's called you to. If you're wearing out, if you're burning out, if you're wearing down, are you living a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life? Are you like one of the Ephesian 12? You've received the Holy Spirit, but you're not accessing him when it comes to how you're serving others. Speaking. There are plenty of people who can encourage. Absolutely. You don't have to be connected to Jesus to encourage other people. But the difference, people who aren't connected, people who aren't led by the Spirit, only have acts, they only know what they know. If you're filled and led by the Spirit, then you get to know everything God knows, not just what you know. And so it changes the way you can speak to people. Small example. I did a wedding here two weeks ago, and I didn't know the couple super well. They've been coming to church here for a few months, but I haven't, or maybe a year, but I haven't spent a lot of time with them. Someone else did their premarital counseling. And so um, I was praying for them the day of the wedding and said, God, I would love for some word of encouragement for them. And the picture that came into my mind was a ladybug. And I was like, that is terrible. That has no, what, am I, what am I supposed to do with that? I didn't have anything else. So I'm up here, and they come up, and I say, hey, I just want to, I was praying for you guys today. This is a little weird. The picture that came into my mind was a ladybug. And the girl, her mouth drops. and She says, that's my favorite, whatever, insect. I don't know if adults have favorite insects. That's my favorite thing. My room is decorated with ladybugs. It was the mascot of my sorority, if sororities have mascots. Well, it, it, was, that, it was super special to her. And she had these sorority sisters that were up here. And they were like, oh, ladybugs. You know, and that's what they were doing. I didn't know. I didn't know at all. I didn't know sororities had mascots. I didn't know people had favorite insects. She had both, and the ladybug was it. And that's nothing special about me at all. Nothing special about me at all. That's the difference between what I know and what God knows. God knows what's important to her. He does. And so he can say, hey, why don't you say this? It'll mean something to her. It doesn't mean anything to you, but it's not about you. It's about her. It'll mean something to her. That's the difference between being able to encourage people just on your own, what you see and what you notice, and having access to everything God sees and God notices. doesn't mean every time you share with somebody it's going to be like that, but some of the time it will. That's the difference between 
being led, filled and led with the Spirit, and just having the Spirit within you and not accessing Him. Does that make sense? What I want for you, what God wants for you, it's this gift that He's given to us. He said, I'm making a provision for you. All through thousands of years of Jewish history, the law has been a burden on the backs of people. Here's what you've got to do. Now, do it. And we have thousands of years of people with great hearts and wonderful intentions not being able to do it. The new covenant is it's not, the law is not external to you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to put a new spirit within you, and he is going to move you. That's the deal. God moving us. And that's available to every one of us who've said yes to Jesus. And it's available to you. If you haven't said yes to Jesus, then do. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. And then you want to begin on a daily basis to say, fill me up. Lead me. Empower me to serve because I don't want to burn out. Some of you are servants. God, empower me to serve because I don't want to burn out. The needs are immense. And if I'm honest, it's overwhelming to me. And I just want to pull the covers over my head. In the power of the Spirit, I can step out. I'm not going to meet every need. I can meet the ones that he calls me to. And it won't kill me. God, anoint me. That's the biblical word. Empower me to speak. I know that's my thing. You may never stand up front. I'm an encourager. I'm a challenger. I'm someone who spurs others on. You've got to anoint me to do that. I want to not just have, I don't want to just know what I know. I want to know what you know, not because I want anybody to think I'm great. And absolutely, I don't want people to think I'm creepy and and I'm spying on. It's not that. But I want people to know that you see them and that you know what's going on in their life and that you care about the things that they care about. So speak through me to other people. That is available for you. If you would say this morning, that's not my reality. That's not my reality then let us pray with you about that. And this is not a one-time prayer. This is daily. But let us pray with you about that today, that God would fill you and that he would lead you. They're gifts that God desires to give to you. Some are serving gifts and some are speaking gifts. And, And those gifts are available to all of his people. Again, not so we can have labels and go around and say, hey, here's what I'm good at, but because there are millions who need to know And he gives us these gifts to make us effective in witness. Let's pray. Ministry teams, you guys can come up. Three questions for you. One, do you know Jesus this morning? Not just do you know about him, but do you know him? If you don't, let today be the day. Would you let us introduce you to him this morning? Super simple. Jesus, here I am. I want to know you. We just sang it. I want to know you more. I'm willing to give up anything that gets in the way. But I want to know you. Are you growing this morning? You may need to re-up in your own life. 
Maybe you need to ask the Lord to bring you into a relationship with somebody. You need a Priscilla and an Aquila. Third, are you living led by the Spirit? Would you say your life in service, if that's your thing, by effectiveness in speech, if that's your thing, overall, it's effectiveness in witness, would you say, yeah? I'm not asking when the last time you led somebody the Lord was. I'm asking, would you say, yes? I can do the things that God leads me to do. I'm effective in those things. I rely on his resources to do that. Or would you say, I'm wiped out. I'm burned out. I got nothing left. Would you say, I never have, I never know, I never have any insight into what God is doing. All I know is what I know. I'm groping along. Would you this morning, whether you've prayed it in the past or not is irrelevant. It's where are you this morning? Would you ask him to fill you again? So Holy Spirit, come and do the things that you do in our lives. I pray particularly for people who maybe have been um, uh, burned in the past. The whole idea of what it means to be filled and led. Any of us that have poor understanding of that or wrong expectations. We want to wipe all those things away. We want to give you freedom to be God in our life this morning and for you to work uniquely and personally in each one of us in the way you know us best. You're a good, good father. We sang that earlier. And so, Father, we submit to you and we welcome this gift of your spirit into our life to draw us deeper into an understanding of who you are, to draw us deeper to an understanding of who Jesus is, and to empower us to be effective witnesses in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.